Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. So what I'll try to do in the, in the next 40 or so minutes is first give you a bit, little bit of background uh, as to how we developed adult stem cell-based organoid technology. So it's very different and complementary to iPS cell-based organoids. Um, give some applications rapidly in, in cancer research. And then I'll focus on the paper that you see named here. And uh, I guess today will is, is, is uh, assumed to be a little bit of a journal club. So I'll try to do my best there. So what you see here is a, uh, a crypt villus unit of the small intestine of a mammal. A colon is very similar. It doesn't have villi, it has a flat surface epithelium, but most of the rules for the small intestine hold for, for colon. Cells are produced in crypts. Uh, they take about two days while they rapidly proliferate to move up, leave the crypts, differentiate out, live for another two days. Uh, maybe 10 different cell types can be recognized now. And four or five days after they are born, they die at the tips of the villi and they undergo apoptosis and are shed into the lumen. So the, the cell renewal time of this entire tissue is in the order of four to five days in mice maybe eight, nine days in man, and only the stem cells that were presumed to live at the base of these scripts were presumed to live as long as their host. So a mouse, that would be three years, for us it would be 80 or 90 years. Um, Nick Barker, 12 years ago, published a paper where he found a novel marker for stem cells, LGR5, and I'll show you uh, rapidly what it actually does, um, which appeared to mark a cell that we had entirely missed and, and most people that were studying crypts. And uh, we made a knockout, a knock-in mouse where we uh, inserted GFP and CRE-ER into this locus. We could visualize these cells. So the large black spaces with the big nuclei are planet cells and these tiny, uh, very thin cells uh, are the LG5-positive cells. They are proliferative and they were, we thought, located at the right place to possibly be the stem cells of the crypt being located at the very base of the crypt. Um, Nick then um, crossed this mouse that he made to a uh, Cree reporter mouse. And if we now inject tamoxifen, we can activate Cree. The cell turns blue and we give a low dose of tamoxifen. So we only had a few of these potential stem cells. There are about 15 at the base of the crypt. And indeed, over the next few days, Nick would see rapidly proliferating daughter cells that were blue that would exit the crypts from day two onwards, would differentiate into one of the about 10 different cell types of this tissue. And then day three and four, after he turned this one cell blue, you would see blue fully differentiated cells of various types moving up the flanks of the villi. Now they're exposed to the microbiome here. They pump nutrients and liquids into the blood and lymph vessels, work very hard, and apparently they exhaust. And when they're four or five days old, they reach the tips of the villi. And as, as predicted, they commit apoptosis. So if we don't kill the mice after uh, five days, but we wait for two years, we would still see these blue ribbons, implying that the cell that we marked is long-lived, uh, unlike all other cells of this tissue. And in a ribbon, uh, we could see, produced by a single blue cell, we could see all of the different cell types of the epithelium, implying that the cell at the base of that ribbon, the LG5 stem cell, is multipotent. So by our definition, we, uh, we claimed that these should be the stem cells of the gut. There was a lot of resistance uh, originally because they're very abundant, for instance. People thought that stem cells have to be very rare. But most notably, they're constantly proliferating. They cycle in a mouse 
about once every 23 hours. And thus they would go through about a thousand cell divisions in the lifetime of mouse, consecutive cell divisions done by the, by the same cell. So logistically, this seems very, very difficult, but it is actually what we, what we see in these mice. Now, based on this, uh, Toshisato then tried to see if he could grow these stem cells. Um, he, we had some very lucky picks there, and I'll, I'll show you something that we didn't know then, but learned later. What you see here is frizzled and LRP. These are the receptors, the co-receptors for wind factors that were known for a long time. We had already shown that wind is the key driving factor of crypt proliferation of crypt stem cells. This molecule here is LGR5, so it's a seven transmembrane molecule. And if I'll play this movie, um, you'll see that, that these two receptors are brought together by wind proteins. Wind, wind proteins are difficult to work with, lipid modified, not easily produced, very sticky. Um, when they do so though, when they uh, bind to their receptors through beta-catenin and TCF, they will activate transcription, their transcriptional targets. And amongst those targets are these E3 ligases, RNF43 and ZNR3. They appear within a matter of one or two hours. The ubiquitinator receptors and they remove them from the surface. Now this is exactly what um, development likes because wind was really known as a as a developmental signaling pathway like Notch and Hedgehog. So brief um, weak signals such that a cell can rapidly move on to the next uh, cell phase decision and, and indeed these signals are very weak when you only give wind to a cell and uh, are very brief. They last for two or three hours and then the cell is ready for a next signal. Now that's fantastic for development, for a fetus, for an embryo, but it's not good enough for an adult stem cell. Adult stem cells need very prolonged, very robust wind signals. That is where LGR5 comes in. So uh, here you see again that the receptors are removed by E3, by the E3 ligases. However, if this is a stem cell and it has LGR5, our stem cell marker, and there is our spondin in the neighborhood. Our spondin was known to be a wind amplifier. We found it to be the, reset, the ligand of LGR5. So our spondin can then bind to LGR5 with its other furin domain. It absorbs away the E3 ligase, removes it from the surface, and thus in the presence of LGR5 and our spondin, this negative feedback loop no longer works, and the active wind receptors stay on the surface and they signal for days. So that's the role of LG5. We didn't know this, but when we are trying to uh, set up a system to expand stem cells, to be honest, we didn't want to create an organoid condition, but we just wanted to take one stem cell and produce many stem cells. And again, so this is Toshisato here. So he took one stem cell. We added EGF in our growth factor cocktail. Noggin, we knew from an old experiment in mice that we needed to block BMP, is really crucial. Uh, can be done with Noggin, also a small molecule. Uh, BMP receptor works very well. And then rather than wind, we chose to use this molecule called R-spondin, which is what was known to be a wind amplifier. I just showed you what it does. It actually turns out to be the ligand of our LG5, which we didn't know at that time. But that was a very, very lucky guess, because if you add our spondin to this culture, no serum grown in matrigel, this single cell didn't make a lump of stem cells, it rather make a structure. And as you can see here, that's what they look like. Um, very, very vital. We've been growing them for many years now. Uh, you can subclone, you can do anything you want with these things. They grow like weeds. They, they actually contaminate many other organoid cultures, like HeLa cells. Uh, and they only need these, these three growth factors. And when we looked carefully, we realized that these are copies, microscopic copies of the gut epithelium. 
These things are crypts with stem cells and pennant cells at the base, transit amplifying cells here, and the inner lining of the central lumen was occupied by all other cell types that we recognize in the intestinal epithelium. And when single sequencing came in focus, uh, we actually found together with Alexander van Oudenaarde two novel cell types in these mini guts, as we call them, that we then found to exist in real guts. So they really are, are, are very complete um, in, in many, many senses, right? Cell number, cell types, single cell sequencing reveals they are the real cells and, and locations, et cetera, et cetera. Even, even cell dynamics are retained between the in vivo and the in vitro situation. Now, it was a big surprise that these things would grow uh, forever. We, but also many referees obviously thought that this is impossible, that these would be normal cells. Then it was not believed that normal epithelial cells could be cultured for a long time. Uh, the exception would probably be the, uh, the epidermis, uh, the epidermal cells that have been shown to, uh, to, to, to be able to grow for a long time. By sequencing, we have never found, even up until now, oncogenic alterations in these, uh, in these organoids, as long as we keep them in a complete growth factor cocktail. As soon as we start removing one, we see escaping clones and they will have activating pathways in the pertinent pathway. I'll, I'll get back to that a little bit later. So what Toshi did to see if they were really normal, he took a single stem cell from an RFP positive um, colon, so it's not small intestine, but colon, put them up to about 100 million cells, send them to our collaborators in, uh, in Tokyo, a lab led by Mamoru Watanabe. There they had treated mice with uh, DSS, which is a an inflammatory bowel disease, very popular model for that. And they infused the Dutch red organoids through the anuses of a larger number of these DSS-treated mice. And over the next few hours, the organoids turn out to float around. Their basal side is on the outside. The integrins are on the outside, always. Highly polarized epithelium. With those integrins, they recognize uh, exposed subepithelial structures, laminin, collagen, etc. They will own, uh, open up. And like a living band-aid, they, they seal these, uh, these lesions. And the mice that receive these, uh, these organoids uh, re recover much more rapidly than the, than the control mice. Now here you see when we open one of those colons, so these, this is black Japanese colon. Here are these Dutch red patches. They actually derive, I stress, from a single cell. We could have transplanted, I think here we did 40 mice, or my mother's lab, uh, lab did 40 mice, but we could have done uh, 400 or 4,000. There's no limit to the number of cells you can grow. It's like, like IPS cells or ES cells. And when we try to find back where these patches are by microscopes, only the confocal will tell us this, because this is a, this is sort of one of these Dutch red patches, fully integrated. And with any marker, uh, this looks like normal functional integrated epithelium. One prediction would be these will now turn into cancers because they've been grown for such a long time. We never see that. Another prediction, these will be exhausted because these stem cells have gone from one to 100 million. Also, we don't see that they fully integrate and they live as long as, as the recipient mouse. Now, since then, uh, we and later also other labs have come up with variations on the theme of growth factors that I just showed. And it's now possible to essentially grow, I think, every epithelial structure from the mouse or the human body. Basic ingredients, you have to activate the wind path strongly, wind are spawned in, uh, activate the tyrosine kinase receptor, that's, that's key to that particular tissue you're interested in, EGF, IGF, HGF, you name them, uh, and block BMP, TGF-beta. And on top of that, you can add like sex steroid, testosterone or estrogens for breast or for prostate, for instance. Uh, but the basic cocktail will always give you some growth. And uh, you can do this straight from patients, 
uh, to model cancer, which I'll show a little bit, uh, hereditary diseases. Uh, we've done it for cystic fibrosis for many other rare diseases. And you can model, uh, I think it was just mentioned, for instance, uh, um, SARS-CoV-2 COVID infects, readily infects these organoids, and they are really nice model to study uh, bacterial infections, et cetera, et cetera. But I'll stick to uh, to the intestinal tract for for this talk. So one application has been to grow uh, cancers. I should stress that that the way we start these cultures, if you don't really need stem cells, also stem cells, in my view, have become a little bit of a of a vague definition. Many many cells under the right conditions will revert back to a stem cell state, become LDR5 positive, and do the things that I show you here. Here we grow. Uh, normal epithelium, we just take a small biopsy, put it in culture, and this is part of a tumor from the same patient. So we now side by side have normal colon epithelium and colon cancer cells growing. Everything else in the tumor dies under these conditions, so we only have the epithelial carcinoma cells. We can sequence, but we can also expose them to drugs. And, and this can now be done at medium to high throughput. Uh, in our facilities, we can go up to 50,000 compounds now, screens at multiple uh, concentrations. Um, but I know there are companies now building robots where you could do this very, very rapidly. And there it would become interesting for diagnostics. And um, yeah, there have been a number of papers. I don't think I have them here. So this is what they look, look like, uh, wild type uh, organoids and tumor organoids from the same individual. We now, I say 300, we probably now have about four to 500 of these colon cancer organoids. We have a biobank of 700 cystic fibrosis patients. We'll talk about this today. And this actually can be done by, even by hand, by uh, just a few technicians uh, working for a few years. They can be drug screens. You can see that here. I won't take you through the details. And based on this, so we're actually trying to see how, how predictive these organoids are for personalized treatment of patients. For cystic fibrosis, this works exceedingly well. And it's now part of the registration in Holland of a drug called Orcombi, a magical drug uh, uh, that Vertex has developed in the US. While we were trying to see if we could predict uh, by doing observational trials, if organoids predict what the patient will later show in the clinic. Uh, this paper came out, beautiful paper in science that, that essentially claims that organoids predict extremely well whether a patient will or will not respond to a drug in the order of 90% or so of correct predictions, much, much higher than you'd get from standard diagnostics, you know, uh, pathology, DNA sequencing, et cetera, et cetera. We were scooped by that paper, but then there were a number of follow-up papers last year or 2019 where, uh, where we had some involvement that didn't come out of my lab, uh, but they all all come to the same conclusion that for standard chemotherapeutics and for targeted drugs, uh, immunotherapy, of course, you, you would need immune elements that people are trying to develop now. But for the targeted drugs and the classical chemotherapeutics, these organoids appear to, to predict very well. And all these papers come up with, uh, with at least 80%, 85% correct predictions also for, for chemoradiation uh, therapy. It's too slow at the moment, takes six, seven weeks, too expensive. Um, but with these robots that are currently being developed, it can probably be done in 10, within 10 days at a, at a miniature scale. And then it would be reachable for possibly for standard uh, diagnostics, much like we treat bacterial infections now, where you actually grow the bacteria, expose them in the lab to a number of antibiotics, and you pick the best one in the lab. And that's the one that you then give to the patient. So in principle, possibly this could also be done with cancer organoids. 
Briefly, another application, uh, you can start from a wild-type uh, organoid and engineer in a number of, of uh, oncogenic mutations. In colon cancer, these are the four main uh, mutations that one would see. Um, we realized, and Toshi Sato, who was already independent then at Keio University, realized the same thing, that these are the three growth factors that we have in our cocktail. These are the mutations that colon cancer generates. APC is a negative regulator of wind. KRAS is in the EGF pathway, and SMAT4 is in the in the uh, BMP pathway blocked by by NOGAM. So it looked like if we would introduce these mutations in a stepwise fashion, we would gradually make our organoids entirely independent of their growth factors, and with all three or four mutations, they should essentially grow without anything. And I stress also without serum. Now, this is the vocal RAM that you probably are all aware of, so sequential mutations that take a normal cell to a, through an adenoma stage to a full-blown carcinoma. Um, a little bit faster here. So what we, uh, what the idea here is, just to, to summarize what we did without showing the real data, we grow normal organoids in the cocktail of three growth factors. We target APC. Um, now we no longer need wind because APC is a negative regulator of the wind pathway. First mutation is in, uh, in the absence of wind. Now we um, uh, target P53 um, with CRISPR. Both alleles are mutated. We expose the cells to Nutlin. This kills the wild types. Only the mutants stay around. So they now have two mutations. They still need two growth factors. Then we try to hit the EGF pathway. We target KRAS, G12D with CRISPR. Now they um, grow independent of EGF and a KRAS mutant. They have three mutations. And then finally, uh, to make them independent of the BMP inhibitor login, we take out the SMAT4 transcription factor in the BMP pathway. Now the cells have four sequential mutations and they, we think, should now look like a real um, carcinoma. And the idea would be to, to now transplant all of these different clones with 0, 1, 2, 3, or 4 mutations into mice. And just to summarize, the only uh, invasive metastasizing carcinomas we saw in the mice with very high frequencies that received organoids with all four uh, mutations. And that's not so surprising because um, they also in vivo don't require anything else but just matrigel and the basic growth factors, the, the basic media that you would give to any cell. No serum, no additional growth factors, and they are fully metastatic. Yeah, that's a little bit of a background. So that's what we have been doing with, with, with various cancers, carcinomas. And to take you to the paper, this was really an idea of a PhD student in the lab, Cayetano here from Spain. Uh, he was then immediately helped by Jens Pushov, another PhD student in my lab, and with the bioinformatic help from yet another PhD student in Ruben van Boxel's lab in the uh, Maxima Institute, another institute where I have a, a small lab. And the idea, the question was, is um, can we can we say something about this, this, this bacterium, PKS E. coli, whereas a lot of literature is used in the clinic, it's, it's studied in the clinic a lot, uh, but yet they are believed to be genotoxic. It was not so, so much known about them. And to give you uh, some background, so the PKS E. coli is an E. coli, like there are many, many different strains of E. coli. They have an extra piece of DNA that I'll discuss a little bit later. And it was, uh, there's lots of papers on, on this particular strain, PKS E. coli. It's, you see more of these bacteria, more of these cases in patients with cancer or with polyps or with um, um, uh, uh, Philip Miller adenomatous polyposis, a hereditary 
cancer disease, um, always associative studies. So you have a group of patients and you see who has the particular strain of E. coli. Other than that, that, that other piece of DNA, they're not really different from the average E. coli. Um, there's lots of papers that show that they sort of induced, uh, they induce an inflammatory condition. You can see all of this. And um, colibactin, I'll get back to that, is a product that's being made by these bacteria. This is uh, the extra piece of DNA that these bacteria carry. It's called the PKS pathogenicity island. It's about, I believe, 60 kilobases, contains about 10 genes. Together, they constitute an operon that is the polyketide synthase operon that was predicted to produce a substance that is called colibactin. And for a long time, the, um, the exact chemical nature of polybactin was unknown. And while we were doing the studies, and I'll show that uh, several different stru structures were proposed, even uh, different structures in the same year in science. And we think that one of them that I'll show you is the correct structure. Um, this pathogenicity island occurs in about maybe the E. coli of about maybe 10% of uh, an average population is not really known very well. And we're actually now involved in several large population studies to see where exactly these bacteria are. Yeah, this, this, this movie uh, gives a little bit more background. So uh, the normal E. coli is here. The PKS E. coli has this extra bit of DNA here. You again see the 10 genes. Mostly enzymes, there's also a gene there that protects the, the E. coli against the product it makes, uh, colibactin, see it again. And it's presumably secreted and believed to play a role in the biology of the E. coli, essentially in the competition with all other microbes in the, uh, in the microbiome of the gut. Yet it looks like uh, possibly uh, as an innocent bystander, it also hits the epithelium. Now, what is known, um, as I already said, this particular strain is associated, but not causally, with polyps, cancer, and inflammation of the gut. Various papers give very divergent percentages, and there's very little study on how often it occurs in healthy individuals, or whether there's sort of age dependency, or sex dependency, or an ethnic dependency of where these bacteria are. Um, so that's not known, that's currently being studied. It was also known that when you grow PKS positive E. coli, so that you have the extra piece of DNA on cell lines, you'll rapidly see the induction of DNA breaks of these uh, gamma H2AX foci. And therefore they're often called genotoxic PKS E. coli. Now Cayetano was reading about this. It was also highly surprised that PKS E. coli is a very popular probiotic. It's actually a, several, several companies sell this and there's a lot of gastroenterologists that give it to patients with all sorts of chronic diseases like chronic disease of the gut, uh, like IBD or irritable bowel syndrome, but also to um, uh, to psoriasis. And as we were doing this study, we found out there were 12 registered trials with PKS E. coli as a probiotic um, for, um, for, for a wide variety of different chronic, usually fairly vague disease entities. And the question that we had, is PKS E. coli, it's genotoxic, is it carcinogenic? Um, uh, and can we provide evidence for that? Now, the uh, uh, the experiment is the following. We, uh, we got a strain of E. coli. Actually, we then got some other strains as well that had PKS. We also got a mutant that was uh, lacking only one of the 10 genes, otherwise was totally isogenic. Um, you can grow these. Uh, they don't have to be in on cells. You can grow them freely in, in Petri dishes. Uh, we do that here. And when we have enough of these bacteria, we pick them up with a needle and now we inject them into, that was the, the first experiment that, that Cayetano and, and his friends did. We inject them into these wild-type human colon organoids. 
you see that happening here, waited for uh, maybe a day or so. So now the, 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 the bad ones can secrete colibactin and we have the control in blue on the right. And when we did that, we injected these E. coli and we waited for some time. Then we stained for gamma H2EX. Lo and behold, you now can see, it's not the best image, but that almost every injected organoid has um, has these PKS, uh, these, sorry, these gamma H2X foci, indicative that there are double-strand breaks introduced by PKS bacteria, but not by the mutant. I think they saw a single uh, focus in, in their control. They inject these organoids one by one, um, goes quite rapidly, but we're also thinking of trying to grow th these organoids in 2D, which they, they really don't like so much. They like the 3D much more. Also, if you inject well the bacteria contained within the organoids, as soon as it would ex escape, they will immediately overgrow the entire culture. Now, uh, then while we're doing this, um, we think this is the correct structure of, of, of Colibactin was published. It was a, a chemical paper, very nice paper in science two years ago, and it was proposed that there are two warheads on the, on the, on both ends of the molecule, and that these would specifically interact, and this was all done chemically in the test tube with adenosine residues in DNA. And if that would happen, then with these two warheads, it, it could cause these uh, interstrand crosslinks. That's something that a cell cannot live with because it wants to, it wants to divide. It has to pull the two strings apart. So if a cell has these crosslinks, it either dies or it has to somehow get rid of that, that crosslink. And, uh, and that's, I think, what, uh, what we will, what we'll be seeing in the next few, uh, slides. Now to give you some background as to what we then did in the next step, this is not easy to explain if you're not familiar with this system, but I'll try to do that. And actually I got a few extra slides from my PhD student from Cayetano that he thinks uh, explains this much better than I could ever do with words. Um, it's set up by Mike Stratton. And what Mike Stratton has done at the Sanger Center, director of the Sanger Center, collaborator also in this study, is classify single base substitutions. So if you think about it, there are six different single base substitution possible. So C's can be turned into any of the three other bases. T can also be turned into any of the three other bases. And then if you do this, on the other strand, you have the same thing. So there are six, there are only six different single base changes possible in DNA. That would be an easy classification uh, that was already being done. But he decided to not only look at the, at the base itself that's changed, but also at the base directly upstream and directly the base directly downstream. So now you have four times six times four is, I believe, 64 different triplets, if you, if you, if you wish, that one can look at. Now, so the idea would be that you now look in, and I think, yeah, as you see that here, so you, you do a whole genome sequence on a tissue, on a tumor, for instance, you, um, you, can, you get all these single base changes together. And now one by one, you ask, first of all, so he basically, this is Cayetano's slide. This would be one of these single base changes. It's a C into a T. Now you don't just say, okay, it's a C to a T, but you also look at the two flanking bases. So you say it's a C to a T change, but there must be a T, there's a T upstream and a C downstream. And if you now put this in, I think there it goes. Yeah, so this one would then position it on, here are all the 96 possibilities. This one is ends up here, T, uh, T, C. Now, the second one, second one is a T to C. Now it has different flanking bases. And this one goes to another, uh, to another position on that bar. And uh, you can do this for, you know, the computers, of course, do this very rapidly for large numbers of, uh, 
of, of single base changes. And if you then add them up, you get these profiles that turn out to be very, very specific for particular cancer types and really are indicative of the mutagen that has caused the cancer. And to, uh, to support what I'm saying here is, for instance, if you do this for, um, uh, for uh, lung cancer, for tobacco, tobacco smokers, you can see that a lot of the single base changes end up here. Uh, these are the C's to A's. And it looks like the flanking bases are not very important because you see an increase of these C2As uh, for almost all flanking bases. There's a few ones that are better, but most of it. But otherwise, this is sort of negative background mutations you get in any somatic cell. If you look in a, at a melanoma, you get a very different picture. Now you don't get the, um, uh, the, the C2A, but you get C's to T's. And now there's much more specificity for the flanking bases. It only happens apparently when the flanking bases upstream are T's and the downstream ones are a little bit less important. Now there's about uh, 60 or so now of these mutational signatures identified by mostly by Stratton, and maybe for 20% or so it is known what the cause is. So chemotherapeutics do this, UV radiation does this, uh, smoke does it. Um, and we asked if, uh, if colibactin would also induce a very specific, easily recognizable molecular signature in terms of the single base signatures. Now, what we did is, uh, or, or I should say the PhD students, hard work for three months. They would inject the bacteria uh, on Monday, let them sit inside the organoids uh, for the rest of the week, then cure the organoids with antibiotics. Otherwise, the bacteria would take over, passage the, uh, the uh, organoids, and then inject again. And they go through a number of, of these, uh, these rounds, about three months. So this mimics chronic exposure to either the bad one or the control that lacks one gene in the PKS locus. And, uh, and then, um, and this is very important. So then the idea would be now we, uh, we sequence those um, exposed organoids and we see if they have accumulated mutations. Now, if you just sequence the exposed organoid in its entirety, you see nothing because every cell will have, we now know, will have many mutations, but every cell will have its unique set of mutations and this, this will lose out. So what we had to do is we had to start with a clonal organoid at the start of this entire experiment, expose it for three months, to the bacterium and then take out single cells. Now at the moment, at least we cannot yet uh, perform a high quality single cell whole genome sequence, but we can grow them up, um, make a little organoid to amplify the genomes and then sequence, um, sequence these uh, organoids, which essentially give us um, a snapshot of the cell that we took out of that exposed organoid um, and then briefly expand it. So, uh, and then we can, we can do the same thing I just showed. So we can now look at the single base changes. We find them by whole genome sequence, comparing them to the original clonal organoid. So these blue ones are the ones that we always see. Uh, but then what we noted is that the ones that were exposed to the bad bacterium, all of a sudden started showing a signature here that had never been seen before and a little bit in pink here, whereas the control didn't show that. And, um, well, this I don't have to show. That's the summary of the experiment. And so this is the, um, the signature we get from the exposed organoids. This is the signature we get from a number of clones from the control organoids exposed to the mutant PKS bacteria. And now when we subtract um, this one from this one, we end up with the 
unique signature. And as you can see here, uh, it is it is very different from the UV signature that was here or the smoking signature. And it's just a few peaks that are very significant. And these had never been seen before by, by Stratton in his cancer studies. But while we were actually publishing this, he then published a paper where he he uh, he came up with a, with a set of novel signatures in colon crypts, or not in cancers, but in crypts. And, and he had a few cases where a single crypt would also show the very same signature. He concludes that there must be some exogenous factor that led to this to the to the occurrence of these particular types of mutations. And and I think we both agree that probably what he was looking at was was an individual, a crypt of an individual that had been carrying in the past the PKS E. coli. Now we can we can not only look at single base uh, changes. This is a little bit more complex. We can also look at small deletions or insertions, and it turns out that uh, these organoids that that show an increased number of single base changes of that unusual type that I just showed, they also have a strongly increased number of single base deletions. Um, and again, we can map where they are, and they turn out to be um, in a very similar. Uh, signature. Now, I told you that Mike will always look at the base that changes. So this is, we, we would say it's always a T that changes uh, when cells are exposed to uh, PKS E. coli. Um, A's and T's are flanking them. But when we extended the window, once we know, when we knew what to look for, we realized that at minus three, there is an A. And then keeping in mind what Colibactin is presumed to do binding to A's. There would be an A on one strand at minus three, and there would be an A opposite this T here on the other strand on zero. I'll show this again if you don't follow me. And this would allow the formation of a cross of a crosslink. And then the cell would have to get rid of that crosslink and apparently changes this T here. Or in case of the uh, the deletions that also occur a lot, it just removes the T and the A pair that sits here to get rid of of colibactin. Yeah, so this would be the model. Two strands. This is the, the base that is either disappears in its entirety or is changed into any other base. And we believe the reason for that is that colibactin will covalently bind to an A here and will covalently bind at minus three to an A at position zero. And this, this gives an enormous task to the cell in which this happens because it cannot live with this, it has to remove it. And the easiest way would be just to, to get rid entirely of this, replace it by another base or just kick it out and ligate this A to this A here. Now, this was all in vitro. The next question would, would then be, is this, oh, is this is occur in nature? Uh, as I said, while we were doing this, we realized that Stratton had seen the very same changes in normal crypts, in, in rare cases in, 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 in patients, um, but didn't know the cause. We knew the cause, but we hadn't seen it in vivo. We started collaborating uh, first with uh, the Heartbeat Medical Foundation in Amsterdam at Winkuppe, uh, and then also with the Genomics England uh, Consortium. Uh, both of these have large uh, cohorts of cancer patients. So the Hartwig Foundation has now almost 4,000 metastases from a variety of different origins and all fully whole genome sequenced. And Genomics England uh, has a much larger, much larger biobank, but at that time they had uh, more than 2,000 primary colorectal cancers. So here we're looking at metastases. One of the referees asked, well, there is no bacteria metastases, but obviously a metastasis comes from a cell that was exposed, could have been exposed to this bacterium in colon. Uh, and these are from primary 
cancers. And if you know, this is just what we get, get back from the Hartwig Center. So these are, this is their entire collection of metastasis. And uh, lo and behold, we find that 5 to 10%, depending on the cutoff, we actually got better in recognizing the signature now, but have a very clear increase of the, of the single base changes that would be induced by the PKS E. coli. Um, a typical, um, I would say, sterile tumor, a breast cancer. We don't see this, but you see almost no other cancers have this. We, we had then one case with a very high uh, signature load, uh, had an egg cancer. Um, well, it's known that E. coli can live in the regions where head and neck cancers grow. And we had uh, one, but we have now some more in the urinary tract where also E. coli, e. coli can live. And we believe that these were not uh, not diagnosed, but they were uh, a colon cancer metastasis, so they should really fall here. So if you look at the spectrum indeed, so it's still a correlation, but the signature we find in this very, very artificial organoid system is seen back in cancers, and particularly in the cancers where that bacterium would live. Now, the PKS uh, pathogenicity island is presumed not only to be seen in E. coli, but other gram negatives are believed to also carry this, so it's possibly a jumping piece of DNA, so horizontal tra transfer from, from E. coli to other gram negatives. Um, very little is known about who has this, but this would, if this holds true, it would be possible to, um, uh, to actually uh, now screen for this and maybe uh, get rid of the bacterium and people who carry these. Another way of, of this is a slightly more advanced way. I think this was done on the uh, on the English uh, cohort. So now basically we score both not, both for the presence of the single base change, a single base substitution signature, and for the insertion deletion signature, you see it's more or less a linear. So you have more of the deletions. You also have more of the single base changes. So it's nicely correlated. So we would state that these patients probably were exposed uh, to heavy loads of colibactin and these probably to somewhat lower loads. Oh, sorry. This is the Hartwig consortium and this is the same thing in the, in the British consortium. So everything holds up. And then then the next question is, okay, these mutations, are they, they are agnostic. They basically just happen in the genome of the cells. Do they also happen in cancer genes? Now, we immediately find a few in, uh, in, the, in the organoids that we were looking at. And this is a, a stop codon that's created in the APC gene. It's clearly a tumor suppressor mutation. And, and it looks like it's really caused by colibactin has the exact right signature. And since then, a much larger analysis shows on the same gene that many of the APC mutations, so this is the original, the first mutation in colon cancer that if, in, uh, immediately will, will result in a polyp that they have, you can see very significant numbers of these uh, mutations caused, seemingly caused by the, uh, by the colobactin PKS signature. Uh, conclusions, I'm almost done. Um, so, we know now that the PKS, that colibactin, induces very specific mutational changes that now are quite easy to find. So as easy as you can find the UV signature in melanoma or the smoker signature in lung cancer. Um, we see that they are enriched in so a subset of colon cancer cases. They're clearly enriched. And in those patients, we do see that the mutations hit the... Uh, uh, the relevant oncogenes in these, uh, can in these colon cancer cases. This implies that uh, if this is a causative association, so if, if these bacteria and the signature really is, 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 
aiding to the development of cancers in patients, that one could go for early detection for prevention. We have now started a large consortium in Holland. We, there's a, a population screening for colon cancer. Um, so everybody in Holland is actually over a certain age. Uh, is, is, uh, we have material from that in a central location. So we're now trying to see who carries these bacteria. Uh, is it in families? Is it certain age related? Is it disease related? Um, we will also see who carries in their cancers or adenomas who cancers the signature. And we can now try to correlate that. And eventually, if this all holds up, you could think of a situation like Helicobacter, where a, uh, a dedicated chemotherapy uh, antibiotic treatment would wipe out uh, the particular E. coli. And maybe you would then have to repopulate the colon with a more healthy form of E. coli. And then what really surprises me is this observation that, that there are companies that are selling and doctors are prescribing and performing clinical trials in university hospitals with bacteria that in the books are called genotoxic E. coli and that we have now shown to actually be indeed mutagenic and very likely be uh, carcinogenic. Uh, with that, I think, well, there's a lot of people obviously involved in this study, but I think I managed, I, I mentioned most of them. Uh, the most important people were, of course, the, the, the three PhD students uh, in my lab and Ruben van Boxel's lab that I mentioned in the beginning. Here are the institutions that, that are funding this research. And uh, with that, I'd like to thank you very much for your attention, and I'm happy to take questions. Well, that was, uh, that was fantastic. And uh, uh, we've been getting, we have plenty of time for questions, and they've been coming in throughout your talk. And I'll try to, uh, I'll try to go through them. So this question actually uh, was the first question that came in. Are we any closer to finding these elusive cancer stem cells that are said to, res uh, to reside inside of tumors? If so, what implications might this have on processes such as disease modeling and perhaps reversing teratomogenesis out of embryonic stem cells? Yeah, yeah so, so while my view on stem cells in general and also on cancer stem cells has really changed in the past 10 years, so what we observe is that the, and, and actually I've written a few commentaries and reviews on this if people are interested. So what we observe is that the term stem cell as defined in the hemopoietic system doesn't really hold in many other tissues. Uh, there is much more plasticity. Some tissues don't even have dedicated stem cells like the liver. Hepatocytes can, can fully repair a liver in a matter of weeks. Cholangiocytes can do it as oval cells. And so this idea that every tissue has a, a dedicated stem cell, progenitors, no daughter cells, and then differentiated, and it's all a one-way street, probably holds for the, for the hemorrhagic system, but doesn't hold in any other tissue. So we don't have to take stem cells to grow organisms. We can, in many tissues, we can just take differentiated cells. You can take one hepatocyte, fully blown up, and grow an organoid. In vivo, one hepatocyte can repair a liver. So, so translating this to cancer, cancers are very close to normal biology. So cancer stem cells or stem cells in the gut, I think the, the, the gut is a very nice example. The stem cells in the crypt, the LG5 cells, they look unique. If you kill them, immediately daughter cells fall back in the niche and become LG5 positive. And many people have published on this. And uh, um, so the entire crypt, all cells in a the crypt, they're all on their way to become something. If you don't do something, they will become that. But if you knock out the stem cells, each of them can go back down and become a stem cell. The very same thing happens in cancer. So it's the, essentially in cancers, there will be niches where the, where sort of the stem cell-like function of a tumor sits with many of the attributes that you'd see in a normal stem cell. Um, if you 
kill these, and there are now multiple papers, um, the tumor doesn't disappear, it's just other cells will fall back like, uh, into that niche, take over, and maybe the tumor stops growing for a little bit and takes on again. So what you really should do is target the niche, because that, that blocks for any cell from, from starting behaving like a cancer stem cell. So, so I think my message is the term stem cell is not a fate of a cell, it's a state. And many, many cells in the tissue can be pushed in that state if, if, you know, if needed. And the hemobiotic system is unique. If you take the stem cells out, you die. But any other tissue, you take the stem cells out, other cells happily take over. In cancers, I think the same thing happens. And it's really the niche that decides you know, the activity of, of self-renewal and regeneration and things like that. So I think that the term cancer stem cell 10, 12 years ago was, was a very absolute term. You know, 0.01% of the cells were cancer stem cells. You kill them, you kill the tumor. I think it's been very disappointing that that doesn't work out. And the reason is the plasticity of many other cells in cancers, in tumors, that can take over the role from the cancer stem cell when it's no longer there. That's great. You, you, in fact, you may have already answered this next question, but I'll, I'll, I'll phrase it anyway to see if there's any way, if you want to elaborate further. Can a single LGR5 cell divide to give rise to another LGR5 cell, in other words, renewal, and yeah. also differentiate? There seem to be too many LGR5 cells to be called stem cells. You mentioned this at the start of your talk. Could you please expand on this aspect? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, again, this also has to do with my, my current view of stem cells. But no, so there is space at the base of a crypt of 12 to 15 stem cells. And uh, that's essentially every cell that touches a pennant cell. The pennant cell is the niche, is the main niche. Every cell that touches a pennant cell is an LGR5 positive stem cell. So if you kill 11 out of 12, uh, or 11 out of 15, then the remaining LGR5 cell will, in a matter of, they will only make LGR5 cells till the niche is filled and then you start producing daughters again. So the also there's no asymmetric division. That's the other thing, multiple papers on this now. So essentially what these LGR5 cells do, they divide, fill up the, the niche, and then the next cell that's being produced is pushed out and becomes any of the daughter cells. And in vitro, you can do this if you keep them in high wind, high EGF, PMP inhibitors, you take one LGR5 cell, you can make a billion LGR5 cells out of them. If you lower wind, they start becoming other things. If you block notch, they go in one direction. So, so it's an extremely plastic system. And, and I think for this tissue, we now, with you know, lots of other labs have been doing this. In the field, we now know exactly how to make pure goblet cells, pure enterocytes, pure enterocrine cells out of, out of these organoid cultures. By playing, essentially, it's notch, wind, EGF, BMP. That's the different combinations give you all of the cell types. Next question, first fantastic talk. Do, do the T to C unique mutations associated, associated with PKS positive injected organoids cause cancer if induced or genome edited into the organoids independent of PK, uh, PKS positive infection? Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a good question. Yeah. So, 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 so colibactin induces these changes, but colibactin is just a chemical. It doesn't know where in the genetic code there are cancer genes. So basically the, the mutations that are caused by colibactin are everywhere in the genome, and you're just an unlucky cell when one of these hits APC. So APC is a good target because it's a large gene. 
And uh, there are many, many ways of producing stop codons. That's what you get in, in APC. Um, this mechanism cannot produce the KRAS mutations you see in uh, the G12D in particular, because that change cannot be produced by, by this particular C2T. Uh, the PR3, I think the PR3 kinase mutation can be made and the BRAF mutation can be made. But so, so some, some point mutations that are common simply cannot be produced by this, by this factor. Uh, but once, so once you have your mutation in your genome, I don't think the cell cares whether it was made by colibactin or by CRISPR or by UV radiation. From then on, the mutation is there. Yeah. Have you detected any unique mutations in metastases that contain the PKS positive E. coli signature? Yeah, so we are in a consortium with uh, with Matthew Morrison, for instance, who described that bacteria can travel with 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 cancer cells to the metastases, particularly from Fusobacterium. What we find is that we don't find E. coli in metastases, but as I showed, we find in in ten percent of the cases or so a heavy load of the PKS mutations. Uh, by definition, they must have occurred in the primary cell that give rise to the primary tumor, like the primary mutations. The oncogenic mutations are also incurred in the, in the colon. And then once the cell starts start metastasizing, it takes its whole mutational history with it, including you know, the APC mutations, the KRS mutations, but also including all the PKS-induced mutations. So I don't think we have evidence that there is presence of the bacterium in the metastasis, which, which would then add even more mutations. The mutations have already occurred in colon probably over 20 or 30 years before that patient ever developed a cancer. Uh, the next question is, I, I think I may need to paraphrase this. Uh, have you found the PKS-induced mutations in other colon carcinoid organoids that you've uh, turned into cancers via TP, uh, TP, P53K RAS and SMAD4? Yeah, okay. So, um, uh, well, uh, if I understand the, the question correctly, so colibactin, so this bacterium can induce these C2T mutations and or, or T to anything else, I should say. Um, and um, so it does can quite easily make P10 mutations, stop codons, P53 mutations, APC mutations. So we do see uh, uh, a lot of the tumor suppressors being hit by this process and then result in loss of tumor suppressor function. Uh, but as I said, very specific KRAS or RAF mutations, probably only... 25% uh, of those can be produced by this mechanism. Uh, G12D cannot be produced. So if a colon cancer has G12D, be it an organoid or be it a cancer, it must have been uh, produced by another mutagenic mechanism other than, than PTSD. Okay. I think they were asking whether you see that when you make cancers by other mechanisms, will this cancer also, I mean, will this mutation also be present? Uh, this signature, no, no, never. The signature you had, you need, there's no other, and also Mike Stratton has looked very extensively and defined most of the signatures. He has never seen this signature anywhere else. Okay. Uh, this next question looks as if it may want to try to bail out the probiotic companies. Are any of the other upstream mutations generated by the bacteria protective, perhaps? Yeah, so that's what I hear. So, so, you, so the idea would be that you do you somehow make the environment more inflamed because they. And I also heard well in real life there is a thick mucus layer over the epithelium that you might not have in your organoids. So there's protection 
we actually know that the organoids have a normal mucus layer, but Toshisato has meanwhile introduced these bacteria in mice, in gnotobiotic uh, mice, and they get the exact same signature. And we're now trying to see if you leave them there longer, whether they will cause adenomas. I mean, this thing is a mutagenic. If you would, if you would now go to the FDA and say, we know that this thing causes mut mutations, can I use it for inflammatory bowel disease patients, which are at high risk for colon cancer already? The FDA will very, is, would be very unlikely to register that as a real drug. Probiotics, and, and probiotics, fortunately for the companies, don't go through registration processes. <laughs> Could H. pylori have the same mechanism to cause a cancer in the stomach? Yeah, yeah. so based on this, we, uh, we are now working with a number of groups looking at other. There's a clostridium, but H. pylori, the only known real cancer-causing bacterium where CAG-A is a gene that's implied in a lot of the things that, that is injected in the proteins injected into the host cells in the stomach epithelial cells. And uh, we actually just got the strains from, uh, from a lab in Austria to uh, also again, we need the we need the isogenic strains, so the, the the bad ones, and then a mutant in the relevant genes. And we're currently doing this experiment as we speak. Stomach cancers have an unusual signature that only is seen in stomach cancers and in uh, Barrett's esophagus, which is sort of the, the distal esophagus, so it's exposed to a similar environment, and also often leading to cancer. And uh, people claim it's the low acid that that produces this DNA mutational signature, which I find very unlikely because I don't think a pH in a cell will go down to five or four and then change the DNA and then the cell will survive. I don't think that happens. So that would be one of our, my, 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 uh, uh, my pet hypotheses that, that indeed something in Helicobacter, of the many things it does, it might also have a mutagen and would then cause this typical stomach signature. That's only seen in stomach and nowhere else. Okay. The next question comes from Jeff Wall, who says, fantastic talk as always, Hans. And then he asks, what's the effect of chemotherapy on disrupting the gut barrier and liberating PKS-positive E. coli? Do you know of any conditions that might increase the mobilization of the PKS pathologic island? Yeah, so no, I don't think that's known. Uh, hi, Jeff, I should say, because we, we know each other well. Uh, uh, no. So, so one thing you could, I not think of is one thing is if, if these E. coli, if you have in, in inflammatory bowel disease, if you have breaks in the epithelial barrier and these bacteria will pass through, they can now expose other cells to, uh, to the same, uh, to the same, I have to think about this. But, uh, no, we haven't really done experiments to answer this. I get the next question is, um, is there any way that the E. coli system can be hijacked to infect potentially cancerous polyps within the GI tract? And uh, could this help with um, the, help the immune system to target potential oh. neoantigens? That's smart. So to induce extra mutations in an existing uh, cancer. I, yeah, we're not microbiologists. We collaborate with microbiology labs. Uh, I'm sure you could you could you could make recombinant versions of these E. coli and have them adhere to uh, to unique surface proteins on uh, on adenomas. I have to think about this. They, such molecules, such surface molecules exist. Yeah, but but again, if you if you would treat a cancer patient with a well, chemotherapeutics are, are mutagenic. Uh, yeah. Well, I have to think about it. It's a good idea. <laughs> the next is a more basic technical question, and the questioner wants to know. 
how do you induce changes in an organoid? Uh, is it microinjection with a syringe, or do you simply co-culture with inducers, for example, like you've done with E. coli? Yeah, well, yeah, so over the years, we've developed many, many different techniques and tried to, to be able to do with organoids what many people do with cell lines. And I think that that tool set is complete. So um, you can inject, you can, you can actually culture them in 2D once you have enough cells. And then you have sort of the luminal side, would be on the, uh, the, which is the apical side of the epithelium, would be on the top side. And, uh, and on the bottom, you would have the, uh, the basal side. Uh, for many transport assays or infection assays, like for 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 Corona, for SARS-CoV-2, these are these are good good setups. Many people who study epithelial biology study uh, study the cells in in two D. Um, yeah, so um, for lentiviral infections, we essentially have to. It's easiest to open up the organoids, so break them up in small pieces, expose them to whatever you want to expose them to, viruses, bacteria and then plate them out. And then over the next few hours, they will close again. And uh, so there will again be the basal site on the outside, apical site on the inside, uh, but then they'll be infected. Uh, there's many ways, and, and a lot of it is published. Also for transfections, for CRISPR, you can do all the electroporation on entire mater gel droplets with numerous organoids in, inject the DNA or the RNA in the organoids, zap the whole mater gel droplet is extremely efficient. Um, but there are many nature protocol papers if you are interested in doing this. So this has been great, Hans. Thanks so much. And uh, it, it was great. And thanks for sharing your, uh, your humor and your data with us. Have a good day, everybody. <laughs>